Let us pray. O God, who desirest that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of thy truth, send, we beseech thee, laborers into thy harvest, and grant them grace to speak thy word with all trust, that thy words may run and be glorified, and that all nations may know thee, the one true God, and him whom thou hast sent, Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who with thee liveth and reigneth forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, it's okay. It's not Mass. You can talk back to me, at least for a little bit. Uh, it's good that you came back. I think there's some new faces, but uh, some faces that were also here last week. So thank you for part two, where we will eventually turn our attention to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass by its parts. Uh, the prayer this evening was from the Collect for the Propagation of the Faith, which was our third Collect for Holy Mass this past Sunday. This past Sunday was a beautiful example, if you will, of how the Missal sometimes can be a little confusing for us, because you may have anticipated that it would have been the 20th Sunday after Pentecost, but actually because we are in the church of St. Luke, dedicated to him, it also happened to be his feast day, which actually trumped the 20th Sunday. And so we commemorate the 20th Sunday, but it also happened to be Propagation of the Faith Sunday, which is why there were three colics. The first one to honor St. Luke, the second one to commemorate the Sunday, and the third one to commemorate the Propagation of the Faith are to offer that prayer. I have assiduously avoided issues of the calendar because it's a complicated dynamic. And literally none of us, there's one person in this room right now, I know exactly who he is, I'm looking at him right now, he's laughing because he knows I'm looking at him right now, there literally is one person in this room who could explain the calendar to us. I'm getting a good handle on the 62 candle calendar, but there is also a calendar or an ordo that governed the church prior to the reforms of 1962, oftentimes referred to as those reforms that were pre-55, but they're really pre-61. We're kind of in the weeds at that point. We're not right there yet. We'll get there. That might be a year from now. We'll come back and have a conversation about the calendar. But right now, we're just kind of throwing everything out there and kind of seeing what's going to happen for us. But I chose that prayer because it speaks about sending laborers into the vineyard. So it is specifically related to the mystery of the holy priesthood, sending men to go forth and proclaim the word. But by virtue of our baptisms, all of us are required to go forth and to evangelize, to share the faith with others. And the greatest gift you can do to evangelize in truth would be to invite people to come and celebrate the holy sacrifice of the Mass with you, whether that be the Novus Ordo Mise or, or the traditional Latin Mass. Obviously, I'm going to encourage the traditional Latin Mass, but get people to church so they can encounter the living God in the most holy Eucharist. And so uh, what we're doing here serves the purpose of hopefully drawing all of us more deeply into intimate relationship with our Lord. But one of the ancillary impacts or effects of what we're doing here should also be not only gaining knowledge, but then gaining a degree of comfortability and a willingness to go and talk about what it is that has happened to you, what it is that you're experiencing, whether you're new, again, you've been here for a while. I know there are many people here who've been with the oratory since its inception. 
and some actually who were here even before that. But wherever you may be in this particular journey, there is an obligation by virtue of your baptism to go forth and to share that. And so knowledge for us is not just an exercise in gaining knowledge. It isn't really knowledge for knowledge's sake. It is knowledge in order that we can do more for God first, and then doing things for God, bring others into relationship with him. So, with that said, for this evening, as you can see, we have we got a lot on the agenda tonight. Uh, in order to remain um, uh, kind of uh, close to the outline that I have in front of you, have in front of you, if you can imagine, I'm probably going to talk even faster. Although I listened to it, I listened to it. I normally don't go back and look at anything that I do. Uh, I never listen to myself on the radio. I don't like my own voice, truth be told. Um, so, I, but I did because I wanted to see what it looked like and to see if there are any changes that need to be made if we were going to make any. I, I look pretty good if I can make that comment. If I, if I say so, it came out pretty nicely. And I didn't think I was actually talking that fast, although it was communicated to me that I talk fast. I told you that in the beginning. Uh, so I might have to pick up the pace just a little bit as well. If you have not gotten handouts, there are two this evening. And please feel free to come up and get them. They're here in the middle aisle, or they're also in the back. One we're going to use in a few moments uh, that it's entitled um, Methods of Hearing Mass or Pious Practices to Help You in Preparing for Mass. The other is the outline. I want to do just a little bit of a review, but I want to do a review by way of giving kind of a, um, uh, if you will, kind of a, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for, to kind of help alleviate some stress or burden. And I'm going to repeat this idea because it's been a theme of mine really for the last maybe six or eight months, maybe even a little bit longer than that. So I want to review just a little bit. Um, I want to make a comment about the postures and then review the missile. And I don't really want to spend too much time on this. The sheet that I gave you actually comes from an article which I did not pass out, and I have to give that to Mr. Podesta eventually who asked for that, which I will do. Um, that, that did a little bit of study about the postures, all right? So there's a little bit of a controversy about the postures at Mass because they do vary from community to community depending on how you grew up, where you grew up, things of that nature. And so there are some things of custom, and so there is a tension that has been existing, I would say maybe for the last 20 or so years, um, maybe, a, well, probably that long, maybe a little bit longer, as to postures. What I offered to us was not to weigh into the controversy, but was to give you something that you could refer to, and it was something that has already been used in this community. So it seemed to me prudent, instead of coming up with something new or trying to get everybody on a different page, that the majority of people, this would be familiar to them. For those who are new or those who may be learning, you would have this in front of you. My exhortation would be to review that and to the best of your ability, try to follow that. As I also said when I gave that exhortation, I am only looking at you maybe 5% of the time, and that's when I'm standing up there. The rest of the time, literally, I don't know what you are doing. And just to be really blunt about it, I just don't care what you're doing because I don't see what you're doing. So if you decide you want to sit the whole time for Holy Mass... It might bother the person in front of you or behind you, and you guys can duke that out if you feel the need to really reconcile that. 
But in truth, we're searching for a uniformity so that we are one community. But we also don't want to club each other to death over things that actually are not that important. I've seen communities that have become divided over very small things that grow into something unnecessarily neurologic. So, I'm offering no opinions as to which set of postures, and there are a variety of approaches, are best. I'm merely offering this to you because this is what the community has used in the past and it seemed present as we try to move forward, especially those who are new to the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass, to have a point of reference for themselves, all right? That really is all I'm going to say about that, meaning if you ask me a question in the question and answer, I'm not going to answer it because I simply don't want to get bogged down on something of that nature. Individually, yes, you want to buy me a beer, we can hash it out, but in this context, no. Secondly, related to the Missal, and again, maybe this is, maybe instead of going through it, it's just really to make the point. My first exhortation is for all of us to, to, um, in a, to be patient with ourselves in a process. Because no matter how frequently you have been celebrating or how long you've been a part of this community, there will always be more to learn and more to know. It is a wellspring from which we can continuously drink that we will never be able to empty because we're dealing with the sacred mysteries. And so if you feel confused or you're slightly overwhelmed or there is an anxiousness or an anxiety about that, I understand that. And my exhortation to you is to be calm. I remember when I was a seminarian, I was learning the divine office, the new office. I now pray the old office. But I was praying the new office, which we were required to do. It took me my first year as a seminarian to come to an understanding of how to work the divine office. Because it's complicated if it's new to you. And even this was praying the office every day in common ten times during the course of a week, if not more than that, depending on what was happening Saturday or Sunday, but every day, multiple times a day. So if you're looking at your missile, maybe you went out and you're the go-getter who went to Amazon and did overnight and it dropped by some drone on your front porch the next day. You ordered it Tuesday night. Maybe you were ordering it while we were sitting here right now because you can do that on your fancy phones. And it arrived Wednesday morning. You opened up. You got your ribbons, started playing with it and moving around. And you're really excited. And then you came to Mass on Sunday and you were thoroughly confused and maybe slightly discouraged by that. It's going to take time. Be patient. Maybe look around and see who's sitting around you. Maybe see someone who actually seems to be familiar. Now, again, be careful, because that person may look like they know what they're doing, but they may be just as confused as you. So there's no shame in that. And that leads me to a another point that I will make throughout. One of the unfortunate byproducts of the post-conciliar period has been a hyper-rationalism attached to liturgy meaning everyone thinks they need to understand everything. So we're going to talk about language, for example. And that really is one of the issues that oftentimes impedes people coming to the traditional mass. I don't understand what's being said. Well, truth be told, brothers and sisters, even in the vernacular, none of us are ever going to fully understand it because, again, it's mystery. And when I say mystery, I'm not hiding behind it because mystery for us is not that which is not known. Mystery is that which cannot be exhausted. So to describe God or the sacred liturgy or all the things of the church as mystery, we're not saying we don't know. What we're saying is we can't exhaust it. So to describe what is happening at Holy Mass or describe the Eucharistic sacrifice as mysterious is to say that there will always be more layers that we can peel away. 
So if you're thinking, I'm going to eventually understand all of this perfectly, the answer will be, you will not. I've been a seminary professor since on and off, not in the last several years, but I began my life in 2001 when I came back from Rome. So almost 20 years now, I've stood in these very places and talked about these very things to a variety of different people. And every, every time I prepare, every time I talk, there's always something new that I learn some insight, some reality that uh, is, is revealed to me, a, a connection that's made with this or that that I missed before, or again, maybe an idea that was there that I need to hear again and again and again. So don't allow, if you will, that desire, which isn't an illegitimate desire. Understanding isn't a bad thing, but don't let it impede you in your spiritual progress. Meaning, if you sit there and you feel as if you haven't done anything, you don't have to do it. First of all, this is God's work to begin with. God's doing all of the work. So if you are there, you're just sitting there, if you will. Yes, the church wants you engaged. She wants you participative to the degree that you can be. But we're going to see in a minute in this book here that comes from 1875 an exhortation as to various ways that you can go about doing this. So um, I am going to give next week a list of resources. I'm going to go through, repeat some of this information in books. There really is a lot out there. If you are good at Googling, there are lots of good resources out there, good things online to read. I will kind of direct some of that for you because there are also some things out there that aren't actually good to read. There are lots of rabbit holes that you can go down and get lost in that just simply are not going to be good for you spiritually. We want to guard ourselves from those. Uh, and if they're in doubt, ever in doubt, you can always email me. I'll have my email address. I'll have my contact so we can continue to move forward. All right? So that's kind of an overview of last week. So let's get going. So let's talk about the direction of prayer, this reality of Eastern orientation or ad orientum. Those two realities, the language and the priest's back is to me are oftentimes the two complaints I constantly hear about people's rejection of the traditional Mass. For an older generation, it's, that's all that they remember. The priest had his back to me, which is kind of how I like it, because I want my bus driver to have his back to me as well. And I want my pilot to have his back to me as well, because if he's looking at me, and he's not looking where he's going, we're all moving in the same direction. But let's give some more depth to that, because that's a, that's, that is a true statement, but I don't want to be flippant about it, because it is more than just simply, it, yes, we are moving in the right, same direction, but for a reason. So, ad orientum, to the east, of course, physically facing the east, which this church actually does, faces to the east. When I'm standing at Holy Mass, this altar that's behind me, the, our Lord who's in the Blessed Sacrament behind me, we're facing east. This orientation, though, uh, Benedict XVI also called it ad dominum. So those churches that may not have been built on a west-to-east axis still could create what he called ad dominum. What he wanted to guard against was somehow creating this dynamic, which again, unfortunately, has transpired, where the conversation is happening between the priest and the people, but God has been left out of the conversation. So what happens? Why is the importance of this Eastern orientation? And this would be true even among pagans. So this isn't per se unique to us. There is a, an ancient practice and custom of facing the East. In one sense, naturally, because that's where we greet the rising sun. 
And when the Son of Man comes, our Lord and Savior, He who is the fulfillment of all that had been prepared for in the Old Testament, it made sense also to face the East because now we're meeting the rising sun as we're preparing to meet the physical rising of the sun. But what the orientation also allows us to do is that theocentric manifestation. It allows us to focus on Christ. He's the reason we are present. And again, there are some, uh, and I mentioned this last week, there are some aspects to this whole conversation about the Mass that always reflect upon the reality of the priest. Our church is a hierarchical reality, whether we like it or not. I've got some power that you don't have. Now, maybe I shouldn't have it, and I certainly don't deserve it, but I got it. Now, the power that I have isn't actually for me, actually not at all for me. It's for you, but I have it nonetheless. And when I'm standing here, there, particularly in Persona Christi Capitis, in a sacrament, I'm exercising this power that allows all of our prayers to be brought together and through the ministry of the priest who stands in the person of Christ to present these to the face of the Father. That's the conversation that's happening between the Son and the Father. And we are allowed to, in a sense, latch on our prayers to those, or latch them on to the Son. And so the Son takes all of them. He sifts through the ones that are unworthy, those things that we don't need, and presents to those fathers the things that we, to the Father, those things that we actually do need. And so when we come together to pray, we're all moving in the same direction. We're all focused on Christ. And as I think I shared with you last, last week, my friend who was here with me our first summer at that side altar, after seeing over several days, realized and said to me, I, I lost sight of you. I'm standing right there. He could have reached out and touched me. But the dynamic of what's happening in Mass isn't about me at all. It is about that which God has given to me, yes. But it isn't about me personally. As a side note, there has been a, a freedom that has come in not having to worry about what my face looks like. Am I smiling? I don't smile as a general rule. I don't scowl, but I don't smile as a general rule. The seminary beat that out of me because they always say, you don't smile enough. Well, then I got to be resistant because if you make me ask me to do something, I'm not going to do it. But I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about what I look like. Are people looking? Am I making good eye contact? That's what we were taught when you're in the seminary. You always got to make good eye contact. If somehow by making good eye contact, it intensifies the experience. What's more powerful than God becoming man? My eye contact with you? This really adds something to it? I can see you? Really? Come on. And, you, and you've been at those masses, again, not singling out in my brother priest, where somehow they're going to add to the drama of God present. I mean, come on, seriously? Bread and wine have become body and blood. There isn't literally anything on earth more dramatic. There is nothing that I can add to that. All of that actually beautifully disappears. But what does that do? On a subjective level, for me as priest, but this would be true for any priest, it allows us actually to better, to, we can pray better. And if we're praying better, then we can help you pray better as well. Because again, we're all moving in the same direction. We're all going in the same way. So it isn't just I get to pray, because again, as I said last week, this isn't about individuals. This is something we do collectively. The liturgy belongs to everyone. But we do bring ourselves to the liturgy. And the degree to which the priest can lose himself and be more subsumed into the reality that he celebrates, 
He will then likewise be able to do that well for you, and you'll be able to participate in that. The whole reality of the holy sacrifice of the Mass is to move us closer to God in our Savior. This, in a sense, is the interior dynamic of what's happening in the liturgical celebration. It makes sense, then, that there is a, a reflected an outward action, an outward alignment between priest and people that reflects this intimacy of moving closer to the Father through the Son by the working of the Spirit. Right now I have my back to the Lord, which I don't particularly like, but here we are, and, I, and I've asked him to excuse me this for this particular reason. But there is at times this sense that has developed in the life of the church that, again, it's a conversation that we're having. Well, I think I can do lots of things, but I can't save you. God can. And so we all need to be moving toward him, looking at him, engaging him, and allowing him, of course, to do the same for us as well. There then is that third point, that distinction between concentration versus distraction. And so I have found even now, I mean, I've increased the number of screaming babies in my church exponentially, and I just had, I'm having five baptisms in the next three weeks. Uh, one baby just born the other day, actually literally two days ago. So lots of, lots of noise going on sometimes at the 1130 Holy Mass. And I know some people don't go precisely because there's all that noise going on. They want to come to 645 where we're all kind of in dark and we're mumbling to ourselves and we can get in and get out. It's fine. But the thing about being there and facing to the Lord is the distractions begin to disappear. I'm not St. Thomas Aquinas, but you know Aquinas, when he celebrated Mass, had to be accompanied by servers, not just one, but several. Because, of course, when he wrote his great Eucharistic hymns, he was literally, he, was, he elevated and was drawn up into the Eucharistic sacrifice. No distractions, and he would get lost for hours. I mean, I can only imagine what that's like, but I've had glimpses of that. Now, with the traditional Mass, where all of a sudden I find myself returning to the tabernacle. So I've gone from the consecration to the distribution of Holy Communion, and now I'm back in the tabernacle, and I actually don't remember how I got there. I mean, I know what happened. I know the steps that were taken. And I don't feel as if I've somehow blanked out. It's just caught up so beautifully in the mystery. Let me read something to you. This is another resource I'm going to recommend to you. I gave you last week the traditional Mass. This is a great book which should be familiar to you called Nothing Superfluous, which is a hard word to pronounce, so I'm not going to try to pronounce it again. By the Reverend James Jackson of the Fraternity of St. Peter. You got a little close-up to that there, my friend? Can you do that? I'm doing that on purpose, actually. You know that. I'm sorry. There you go. And I'll leave this up here so you can take it. I want to read something to you, what he says. <laughs> I love picking on you. That's a good. It's good for you. Okay. He's writing this in relationship to the use of vernacular hymns in Mass, which in the traditional Mass is not allowed. Vernacular before after but not during. But he writes this point, and I think it relates in general to the orientation as much as it relates to language as well. He says the following, in liturgy which is governed by vernacular hymns, the believer is constantly moved from one style to another, and so he has to deal with highly subjective poetry of varied levels. He is moved and stirred by not only, but, but not by the thing itself, liturgy. He is moved and stirred by the expressed sentiments of the commentary upon it. By contrast, 
The bond that Gregorian chant weaves between liturgical action and song is so close that it is impossible to separate form and content. All the chants create a ladder of liturgical expression on which the movements, actions, and the content of the prayers are brought into perfect harmony. He's talking about chant particularly, but I believe there's also a legitimacy to the direction of prayer that removes, in a sense, sentiment and subjectivity because it keeps us oriented properly. It isn't me looking at you, you looking at me. It's all of us together looking at our Lord. Let's move on. And again, I'm going to leave some time for question and answer. So, and I know some of these are, not, I wouldn't say controversial, but there may be some further questions or reflections you want to make. Let's talk a little bit about sacred language then, because then we can move into the uh, holy sacrifice proper and the use of the Latin. So if ad orientum is one neuralgic issue, so then is the sacred language. And by way of clarification, the Second Vatican Council did not abrogate the use of the Latin language, quite the opposite. If you read the document Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the first document from the council, it is the document on the liturgy, it does speak about a judicious use of the vernacular, speaking specifically or rethinking specifically in relationship to sacred scripture, the reading of the epistle and the reading of the um, gospel. But it still encouraged chant and the use of the Latin language in other, the other aspects of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, precisely for that first point, and that is universality, so that you could go everywhere. So I would always hear people say, you know, well, prior to the Council, you had all these national churches. You may have had an Irish church or an Italian church or a Polish church or a French church. And of course, in St. Louis, you know, some of these may have been one on one corner and another one on the other corner. They may have been right next to each other, all right? But the thing that they had in common was that they still celebrated the exact same Mass. What would have been different, maybe would have the hymns they would have sung, or the particular pieties that they may have had, saints that they brought from their homeland, things of that nature. But the Mass would have been the same, meaning if an Irishman dared to go into the German church for Holy Mass, as long as he didn't open up his mouth, except to speak Latin, no one would know that he was Irish and not German and converse for the German to the Irish church, the Polish to the Italian church. You get what I'm saying. So there really was a universality by virtue of a common language. It allows the church to be what she truly is, and that is one, universal, cutting across boundaries, superseding all the divisions that are natural to the human condition and those things that we introduce that divide us. And it also then reinforces that the church is the universal means of salvation. No one wants to say that. She's the only means for salvation. Makes people uncomfortable. How can you say that? That's a conversation on ecclesiology. That's one of the topics we'll deal with probably next semester. I'm, that's why I'm throwing all these things out here, because we're going to have lots and lots of stuff to kind of talk about and come back to. But because she is the universal means of salvation, having a common language allows that, again, that interior, that theological reality to express itself literally. Remember, we're an incarnational church. Therefore, things are enfleshed. Things are tangible for reason. And so things like language are simply just byproducts of being able to communicate. Language has the ability to do something great, and that is to bind and hold us together. Secondly, the Latin language is 
there's an, as it says, an immutability. It's not subject to change. And by virtue of that, it allows us to protect doctrinally the content of the Holy Mass. And so one of the things we'll have, again, this is another point, but we'll see some of this. Many, many of our prayers and the structure of the Mass are of ancient origin. Things that are in place by the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries. Prayers that we can trace back to apostolic times. We know that the early church, especially in the first 300 years of the church, in the early councils, battled uh, 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 seriously over language in the creed. And so words weren't sparse. Words weren't just simply things that they threw down on the page. Every word meant something because it was conveying these very serious theological ideas. And so the use of a language that transcends allows, in a sense, for that doctrinal content of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass to remain unchanged. It's not subject to conversations about what various things actually mean. So one of the debates from the Council from Lumen Gentium is when she describes that the fullness of the Church of Jesus Christ subsists completely in Roman Catholicism. Whole dissertations have been written by ecclesiologists on what that one phrase actually means, subsists in. Again, that's not the purpose of our conversation. But again, when we get into translation, it begins to open up conversations that the church may not want to open up, not because she's afraid of the conversation, but because ideas have been decided. Things, there are things that are complete. There are things that are not open to discussion anymore. The resurrection is real. Jesus is the God-man. These aren't things that we debate or discuss anymore. So there's a universality to the language, there's an immutability to the language, and then there is a transcendence to the language. And I think for me, it is this one. I had a conversation maybe three, maybe a month and a half ago with a very, very good priest friend of mine. And we were talking about, because when the Holy Father Benedict XVI gave in um, the modo proprio, Summorum Pontificum, uh, the full restoration of the traditional mass, one of the things that was, one of the options that is present is to utilize the vernacular, even now, in the celebration of mass for the epistle and the gospel. I've done that during Holy Week because of the length of the gospels then. But he and I were having a conversation. He goes, what do you think about that? I said, well, my people would kill me if I did that. So I, I can't even begin to think of that as a possibility. But I, as I've thought about it, I thought, okay, well, what, beyond what the visceral response from my faithful would be, the question would be, well, what's wrong with that necessarily, especially in that moment? And he made a very valid point. He's not talking about in other aspects of the Mass, but in those times where we do need to understand, because the epistle and the gospel are for the faithful to a degree to understand what the lessons are, what it is that we're being instructed to do. We refer to that part of the Mass as instruction. It would be good if we understand it. But there also is this last point, and that is the significance of transcendence. It detaches me from my everyday, ordinary language. I have to work at it. So even now, I never come in cold and celebrate Mass, meaning Whatever Mass I'm celebrating, low Mass, high Mass, second, third Mass of the day, whatever it might be, I have gone over the text and prepared myself. Not only for my pronunciation, that it would be precise, and trying to get better at my pronunciations, but that I understand actually what's going on. And of course, it's facilitated a deeper understanding. But then I've realized that the beauty of the language is that it does pull me out of myself. It elevates the experience on a subjective level. And so, the, and again, 
we can, we can talk more about all of these topics, so we're just scratching the surface. And that really is the purpose of these days, is to scratch the surface and to give us some, some beginning, if you will, of what should be an ongoing process of education. But sacred language exists for that universality, that immutability, and that transcendence. All right? How are we doing? Okay, everybody's good? Okay, we're doing all right. So let's talk about what happens theologically in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And I want to draw particular attention to the orations themselves and what the prayers actually say to us. But this phrase, celebrated dogma, comes from this book that I made reference to last week, the traditional Latin Mass. And I've already quoted part of his reflections from Paul Claudel. I want to, if you'll permit me again, forgive the length of this, but it does a beautiful way of, it does better than I could, of describing this idea of celebrated dogma. Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters, if you never picked up a book of theology, as Claudel himself said, your experience at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is all the theology you actually need. Do you need to read more? Yes. If you certainly can, you should. But we know long before the printing press, people didn't have access to books. People didn't have access to information in the way that we so readily have access to it. And yet they still had to develop and form their faith lives. How was that done? Certainly through the oral tradition, certainly through preaching and sermons, which we'll talk about, but through one's participation, one's presence, having day after day, Sunday after Sunday, year after year, the prayers washing over us, the readings washing over us. One of the things that I love now, this is my uh, third cycle through a liturgical, you know, it will be my beginning my third cycle this coming Advent. And because we don't have, uh, uh, we have a stable lectionary, a stable set of readings, which again, according to some, can get boring, but the nice thing is I know what's coming Sunday after Sunday. And I, first of all, as a preacher, I have to come, I can't say the same thing I said last year because the same people who were sitting there last year are sitting there this year. So I've got to come up with something new. But then that forces me to go deeper into the Scripture. It forces me to work at it. And it forces me then to learn. So this is what he's writing. So this is Father, and I'm going to miss, it's Fyodorovich, uh, I think, but that's probably not right. It sounds good, but it's not correct, so I apologize. I know people are watching this, and I'm slaughtering the poor man's name. He writes, whoever reads this description, which I had already read to you, Claudel says, it was Mass that made the difference for him. He said, I didn't know anything. I went into church, and I was immediately transformed. He was in Notre Dame. And if you've been there, you know how beautiful it is, and it's great to hear that they're going to rebuild it as it was and not come up with some, you know, tree in the middle of the sanctuary or something like that, something they were going to do. They were going to put a pool on the top of it so you could swim while they were having mass underneath. Crazy stuff. It's the French. What are you going to do? So, so make sure everybody's listening. There we go. So whoever reads this description understands why Claudel could say the epitome of Catholicism, the delicate and substantial point that summarizes it all, is the Eucharist. In a similar way he wrote in his work on the Mass, there always lies upon the altar a book containing all knowledge of life and death. So think about that. All you have to do is go to Mass. Come to Mass. Everything about life and death is contained at the Holy Mass. This is why the precept is so important. Go to Sunday Mass, not receive Holy Communion. 
because you may not be in a state to receive Holy Communion, but you still need to be present at Mass. If for no other reason, not only to fulfill the commandment and to fulfill the precept, but because of what Claudel is saying here, because this is, Mass is the book really that needs to be read and experienced. In fact, now this is Father's own words, from the beginning of creation, as described in the first pages of Genesis, and presented to us in the first reading of the Easter Vigil, until the heavenly Jerusalem as depicted in the Apocalypse of John and proclaimed in the Epistle for the Dedication of a Church, from the lamenting de profundis of the absolution for the dead, out of the depths I have cried to thee, O Lord, to the rejoicing alleluia of Easter morning, all knowledge of life and death is included and kept in the traditional Roman Missal. We're often accused of not being biblical. <laughs> the thing is only made up of the Bible. That's the language we're using is the language of Scripture. The things that come out of my mouth are not of my own making. There is never a time in the traditional Mass where I'm allowed to say this in these or similar words. The only words I can use are the words that are given to me. Now, I'm pretty good with words, as a matter of fact. So I kind of like the freedom to kind of rift, if you will. Eh, no, not when it comes to the things of God. No, the church says don't do that. Give what was given to you. Pass on what has been passed on to you. And so that beautifully describes here this celebrated dogma. So, what, so if you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the cubicle next to my Protestant friend who's quoting all of sacred scripture to me. All right, that's, I guess that's a praiseworthy thing. I don't know anything about the church, but you actually do. Talk to him about your experience and what happens to you at Holy Mass. And even if all you can say is that I'm there and I'm confused as heck and I don't know what's going on, but I know I need to be there and I know I'm better for being there, that's going to be infinitely more significant than all the scripture passages that he can encounter because what happens at Mass is the scripture comes alive. So Rock Koretsky, who's a Cistercian priest who teaches at the University of Dallas, he has a modern book called The Wedding Feast of the Lamb, and he talks about the two parts of the Novus Ordo Mise. That's what that abbreviation stands for, by the way, N-O-M, that was on last week's outline, the Novus Ordo Mise, the New Order of Mass. He says that the relationship between the liturgy of the Eucharist and the liturgy of the Word is that the liturgy of the Word is a letter from our beloved that we read and read and read over and over again. It becomes so tattered in reading that we tape it together and carry it in our wallet. But once the beloved, once the author of that letter is in our presence, as significant as that letter is, it simply fades away into the background. And so sacred scripture comes alive because we encounter the living God, the one who inspires, the one who the author, the words himself. But now here he is. And so it gives way to all the things that we read. And so the individual who can quote scripture chapter and verse, maybe from start to finish, who knows it in and out intimately, my Protestant family, that's good, that's praiseworthy, but they're missing the next piece, and that is scripture alive in the living God himself. Final thought here, this is under this skin, this celebrated dogma. As the biblical readings present to us the great events of the story of salvation, the feasts of the saints bring to mind the church's history over the centuries. In the orations, the central dogmatic truths are expressed, as well as the principles of Christian morality and asceticism. The Missale Romanum presents a unique summary of the entire Catholic faith. You getting the point here, brothers and sisters? Go to Mass. 
Read your Mass. Get your missile. Pick up the missile that's in the pew. Do preparation before you come, and you will learn. Your knowledge will increase. But the most beautiful thing that will come out of that is your intimacy with the Lord will increase. A priest, pardon me, this is from Martin Moshbach's book, aptly observes, this is his book, Heresy of Formlessness. I'm telling you right now, there are about, I could put a list of like 10 pages together of things that you actually should read. I'm not going to do that to you. But there's so much good stuff. I can give you more stuff. So if you want to email me later and say, give me that list of 50 or 60, I'll be happy to do that for you. But this is from a book called The Heresy of Formlessness, which looks at the current state of the Novus Ordo Misae. But this is from his book. This is Moshbox, Now Reflections. A priest, shipwrecked on a remote island with nothing but the Missal of Trent, could produce with it the whole patrimony of Catholicism. If all he had was the Missal, the whole patrimony of the church is experienced in the Missal. I think that's the coolest thing in the world. This special quality belongs to it not only because it is so-called complete Missal, containing the Epistles and Gospels, which... In contrast, the New Order takes instead from separate books. So it isn't just a question, he's saying, of the fact that in the Novus Ordo Misae, they're split now between the Missal proper and then what we know are used as the lectionary. In the traditional Latin Mass, in the Missal of Trent, they're together. It's not just a question that. He says, the lectionary, he says, the special quality of the classical Missal, according to which it contains all the mysteries of life and death, is based on the fact that there... And only there, no longer in the new version, can one find prayer texts that bring the specifically Catholic into sharp relief. In this way, the classical rite of the Mass is shown to be dogma celebrated. The prayers of this liturgy are entirely governed by and interwoven with dogma. That is not to say that it's not present in the Novus Ordo Misae. But at times in the Novus Ordo, it is more obscured. It's more difficult to find, especially when there are the plethora of options that are actually given. My options are limited. Someone asked me the other day, how do you decide which Mass you get to celebrate? I don't. Church already decided for me. And I thought I would bristle at that, given that I don't like being told what to do. But it's kind of nice, because I walk in and I get dressed and I celebrate. I have to think about it. I don't have to. When I was actually, uh, two of my seminarians were visiting with, or one of my seminarians were visiting last week, and we were both remarking when he was the head MC and I was the director of sacred liturgy, every single day in the seminary, it seemed like every time we would begin Holy Mass, it'd be, it was like it was new. It was like Groundhog Day, as if they'd never celebrated Mass before. Because there are all these questions. What do we do here? We had different gradations of feast days and different music, and somebody would forget what we're chanting, and then we do this and do that. And one day, I kind of got to say, it's the same thing. I threw in a couple of expletives because at that point I was really, really angry. I can't do that now. And I was in the sacristy, so I wouldn't do that now in the presence of the Lord. But I did communicate to everybody there within listening voice of my hearing of my voice, folks, it's the same thing over and over and over again. But in some ways it wasn't the same thing over and over and over again. And therein lied the difficulty for them. There were so many options, so many choices, on top of which there were 20 priests. And so one priest liked this. One priest liked Chalice Fails, the other one didn't. One priest wanted Bells, the other one didn't. One priest wanted this, the other one didn't. da 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 You know priests, goodness gracious. Okay, so we're all trying to navigate all of those emotional choices. And so, yeah, when you go to Mass, it was hard to see how one Mass was the same as the next as the next. That's not present. When I walk in there, everybody knows what's going on. 
We all know which. There are some decisions we have to make where we're going to put the 20 surfers that we keep. The number of people in the sanctuary at 1130 keeps growing, by the way. We started with like five or six, and I think there were 20. We don't have enough room for 20 people in here to move around, but okay, that's a good problem to have. And so what, this, what he's talking about, again, just to reinforce this for us as we look at what's happening in the Mass, is when we talk about dogma, we talk about the content of the faith, it is properly and beautifully interwoven into what is happening in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. All right. Okay, I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit because I'm slowing down. Everybody's okay? I've got a few more. I'm still doing preliminary stuff, so just bear with me. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit. Um, so where am I? I'm in, I'm in Roman number, number five on our outline, what the prayer teaches us. I'm going to touch on these very briefly, and if there's time, either tonight or next week, I can come back and expand on them. But if we are basing this on what we said prior, and that is that the whole sacrifice of the Mass, the whole experience of the traditional Mass presents to us the, the full patrimony of the Catholic faith, what can we say specifically about the orations themselves? And by the orations, I'm talking about the collect, or the opening prayer, the secret, which in the Novus Ordo Mise is the prayer over the gifts, and then the post-communion, or the prayer after Holy Communion. So the collect, which as its name implies, collects and brings everything together, the secret, which is the priest, the prayer, the prayer, the priest prays privately, and then the post-communion. These are some of the oldest components of the church's spiritual inheritance in the liturgy. And they are beautifully steeped in dogma. One of the things that I cannot do for us time-wise, which we might do in one of, the, one of the privileged seasons, which I did once in one of my parishes, is simply use the prayer texts as a, a tool for theological reflection. But you can do that now. What does the colic say? Uh, the first Sunday of Advent, and how it beautifully expresses what the Advent season actually is, that longing anticipation. That's where the dogma comes alive, but it's right there for you, and then you hear it celebrated in the holy context of Mass. So these, uh, but, but the beauty also is they're succinct. Roman liturgy is known by its somberness, its sobriety, its terseness. We're not given to a lot of histrionics. We don't jump around, we don't flail around, we don't clap hands like they do in the Protestant churches. We don't do a lot of that. We're not Eastern, our hands aren't flooding around like this with the Holy Spirit. Come. I thought those things are bad. I think I've shared with this story. I'm, I'm a child of converts, you know that. So I got a lot of Protestants on both sides of my family. And so as a young kid, we were carted off to my great-grandmother's church, tiny little maw was her name. No more than maybe four and a half, five feet. She could eat like a sailor on leave. Goodness gracious. And at Holy Mass, or at, at service rather, the Ecclesial Communion, she'd be caught with the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden there would be Ma, this little tiny thing, shaking and rocking and rolling. And here I am, this poor little Catholic boy. What's wrong with my great-grandmother? What's wrong with her? And of course the licensed church nurses are there to catch people who are falling out. All of this was foreign to me, this being caught by the Holy Spirit. We don't do any of that. So people think we're boring. No, Roman liturgy is far from boring. It's extremely engaging, the more you know it. But it's not given to histrionics and unnecessary emotivism. Because it isn't about what you feel. It's not about sentiment. It's not about emotion. Because if you predicate your whole spiritual life on those things, you're going to always be kind of at the, at the behest of your gut, which may not always lead you to truth. So, what's the first thing that the prayers teach us? 
It teaches us a realism about the human condition, a realism about the idea of the human person. Specifically, what it reinforces is the, sinf the sinful state of man and his need for redemption. We are sinners, and we need to be redeemed. Now, you may not like to hear that. It may be in your mind you're not a sinner. In that case, you and I can switch places, and I will go sit down, and you can stand forth, and you can do everything in the church going forward, because you're a saint. In the meantime, I suspect that you could probably uh, maybe articulate a couple things that little need improvement. Since we are sinners, I'll own my own statement, since I'm a sinner, I am in need of redemption. St. Augustine writes that the church has gone forward on her pilgrimage amid the persecutions of the world and the consolations of God. That beautifully describes where we are right now. The church is under persecution, real and true. And God knows what's going to happen three weeks from now, a month from now, where we're going to be. But those persecutions are overshadowed and properly contextualized by those consolations that come from God. And when you come to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and in the prayers that are prayed by the priest on your behalf, you're experiencing this. You're articulating this. He lifts up your struggles in the prayers that he offers. But again, he doesn't offer them in his own words. He offers them in the words of the church so that God truly hears them. The prayers reinforce for us that we need to be in a constant posture of asking God to protect the faithful to defend us from all dangers, to free us from all evils that threaten us. There is, beautifully expressed in the Holy Sacrifice, this constant state of tension between the life-saving sacrifice that we need to enter into and the fact that we ourselves come to that broken and sinful. The orations also reinforce the battle with sin that then we also have to undergo the wound of sin, how sin drags us down, how sin weighs us down. When I first started teaching in the seminary, one of my first classes was on the sacrament of penance and anointing, and I did what I called the theology of sin, where I talked about the reality of sin, if we're honest, reveals to us the true depth of God's mercy. The more aware we are of our sinfulness, it provides an opportunity for us to also be aware of the depth of God's mercy for us. Many of my seminarians at the time took umbrage to that because that wasn't the traditional approach. You don't start with sin. When you're dealing with the sacrament of penance, you actually start with grace. And the penance, the sacrament is the means by which grace comes because we're sinners. But there is something very profitable by recognizing our weakness because then I also can rely upon God to find my strength. And so the prayers reinforce that. Secondly, the prayers reinforce the reality of the church militant, meaning that we are indeed engaged in a battle. And this battle is supernatural. This isn't just a church making her way in a pilgrimage, so we're blithely going along singing songs and eating food and drinking wine and having a good time. We might do some of that, but we're also militant. We're military. We're martial. We're engaged in battle. Now again, it's a spiritual battle, and our disposition is not to be warlike like our enemy is. Rather, it's to trust in the Lord. But we have to engage the battle. And again, the prayers themselves understand this. The prayers also reinforce the beauty of the lives of the saints. Oh, goodness. 
I'm not saying anything bad. Come on, Lord. It reinforces the lives of the saints and the role that they play in our lives. And it's, again, going to the saints assists us, in a sense, in overcoming this rationalistic tendency that would like to recognize the saints only for their exemplary function and dismiss, if you will, their supernatural intervention. The saints do intercede for us. God allows that to happen. We look at them, we go to them, then not just because they're examples of what we can achieve through God's grace. We also want them to assist us in achieving what God's grace is actually giving to us. There also is in the orations at Holy Mass a clear articulation of the last things. Heaven, hell, purgatory, death. It reinforces what the church teaches, that these realities are real, meaning we need to be careful, we need to be vigilant, that we don't end up in hell. No one likes to talk about that. No one likes to think about that. That's not what God wants. Let me be very clear. But hell still exists whether I think it does or not, whether I like it or not. It's not predicated on me liking it or me agreeing with it. It's not up for a vote. And the prayers reinforce that. So I'm never, allowed to allow, I'm never allowed to let those thoughts be too far away from my mind. There is a greater uh, sense of these eschatological realities present in the traditional Mass that sometimes are obscured in the prayers of the Novus Ordo Missae. Because there's also a clear uh, companion to this articulation of the possibility of condemnation, but also the reality and the possibility of salvation. God doesn't dangle a carrot in front of us as if it can't be achieved, but rather reminds us indeed it can, and this is the way that we go about doing it, praying the Mass, listening to the Mass. And finally, the prayers are for us a school of prayer. It allows us to learn the language of liturgy and to develop a, a Christian mentality. We talked a little bit about allowing our lives to follow the liturgical calendar. That's our lives as Catholic men and women. The modern mentality wants to have the church adapt to their mentality. And so prayers are in the vernacular and prayers are meant to be didactic. Prayers are meant to be accessible. Let's use language that people can understand. And to a degree, yes, there is. But what's wrong with the gibbet of the cross? What's wrong with consubstantial with the Father? Are these hard words for people to understand? I hear in the back of my mind, my mother, when I would ask the question, I don't understand that word, go get a dictionary. Pick up a dictionary. Open it up and look it up. Guess what? You're going to learn something, not only about that word, but all the ones that surround it. So go look it up. Learn something. And so what the traditional Latin Mass does, not only through the use of the Latin language, but through the prayers themselves, it forces us to lift ourselves up to God. Instead of pulling God down from his heavens, bringing him down simply to us, making it convenient and accessible for me to understand. No, the job is for me to understand God because God has done all the heavy lifting in the first place. All right. So with all that being said, we now get to what the whole people were here in the first place. That is to talk about the Mass of the Catechumens. So in order to jump into the Mass, I'm going to skip number six on your outline, which talks about assisting at Holy Mass. The reason why is because I gave you that little reflection that says 
methods of hearing or pious practices to assist at Holy Mass. I would encourage you to read it. It offers insights in preparing to come to Mass. It helps you during Mass, then offers reflections at the conclusion of Mass. This is not the only resource. So if you read this and you decide, oh, I don't like any of this, don't get upset. Go find something else that works for you. I can find something else that works for you. But this is just meant to, again, to uh, uh, help and prepare you in coming to Holy Mass. Okay, so the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass can be divided into two main parts. The Mass of the Catechumens and the Mass of the Faithful. In the Novus Ordo, it would be comparable to the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. One of the consistent gestures, for example, between the two is that at the end of the Mass of, or the, mass of the Catechumens, there then is the dismissal of all those who have been present at that point. When, by the time you get to the Creed and profess the Creed, then those who are not yet fully initiated leave because the Mass of the Catechumens has come to an end. The Mass of the Faithful are for those who are fully initiated and therefore able to participate in the sacrifice itself. It is of ancient origin. It had some practical implications because when the church was under persecution, they needed to make sure that the people there were actually supposed to be there as opposed to spies trying to somehow work against the Christian community. But then also you needed to understand, you needed to be fully initiated. There was always learning that needed to be going on. We think of now the RCAA process. It's nine months. Some people would take a lifetime before they would actually come into the church because they would, for whatever reasons, because of their sinfulness, because of their state in life, uh, because of their ongoing confusion about various teachings and truths of the faith. Um, and again, these are conversations we can come back and address. So if you were in RCA, for example, and you thought nine months is a long time, don't feel so bad. Nine years, 10 years, 20 years, a lifetime. I shouldn't do that on screen. Can you edit that out, me drinking water like a savage? So, the preparation, so the mass of the catechumens then can be divided into the preparation rites, then the instructions, basically two parts that have various parts underneath it. All of this will make sense to you because you've been at the Latin Mass and you will see these. So we're basically going to go now and just kind of talk through what's actually happening. So, it begins with a procession. Whether it be a long procession down the main aisle or a short procession that comes from the, the, um, the sacristy, there is a procession nonetheless. Whether it be multiple ministers at a solemn high mass, and we're using the solemn high mass as the exemplar in this discussion because, as I said last week, that is the exemplar, that is the type of mass. So if you had to say, what's the perfect form of holy mass? What should it look like? It should look like solemn high mass. Now, again, there are a whole host of historical reasons why it isn't that way every, every time we celebrate mass, but that's the referent point, if you will. And so why a procession? Because there is this opportunity of, through the significance of the ministers present, the priest and the server, or the other ministers, priest, deacon, subdeacon, to be an example of the church militant on her journey to our Lord, especially for a procession at High Mass that begins in the back where you come down the main aisle. Uh, St. Charles Borromeo wrote a beautiful discursus on the church building itself. It's only in Italian right now. 
um, that I know of. It may have been translated by a friend of mine. I don't think he's finished yet. But he talked about why the church is structured the way it is, why the baptistry normally is in the back or outside, why the confessionals are on the side. Because what's happening is you begin out there, if you will, in the narthex, out, even outside the doors, and you're making your way in, and all of it leads you here to the altar of sacrifice. This is the center of our existence. And of course, when the altar was pushed up against the wall, there was no competition between the altar, the tabernacle, and the crucifix. It all made one beautiful, complete tableau. And everything was moving in this direction. And so here is a procession of the sacred ministers on behalf of all of the faithful making that procession as they go up to the altar of God to offer His sacrifice. There is incense oftentimes used at, at uh, Solemn High Mass, Pontifical Mass, cross and candles preceding this. All of this giving a dignity to the priest himself because he stands in the person of the great high priest. But of course the use of incense and other aspects of that also elevate uh, and distinguish, if you will, what's between low mass and between high mass. When the priest arrives, he takes off his, he's at, at solemn high mass, or at high mass on Sunday at 11.30, the priest is not vested in the chasuble, he's vested in his owl, which is the wider garment, his cincture, which is what ties around him. He's got his stole on, and he has a cope, which is the longer garment that is um, joined with a clasp at the front. It's used for Sunday mass, it's used for benediction, it can be used for solemn baptisms. His chasuble which is folded up on the chair, and his maniple, which he wears on his wrists, are aspects of Holy Mass proper. Those are over there. Okay, so the priest comes. He kneels down, and it begins with the sprinkling rite. The very first act is an act of purification as he approaches the altar of God. There's either the asparagus, which happens during the church year, or the vidi aquam, which happens during the Easter season. So the priest sings, and the choir then picks up and continues. Or the Vidi Aquam, which I'm not going to attempt to sing because I do a horrible job of it. But that then allows the priest then to bless the altar, bless himself, bless the sacred ministers who are present, or other ministers who are in the sanctuary. Then he blesses the faithful as well. This is reminiscent of that need to purify ourselves before entering into the temple of the Lord. By the, rit by the ritual and the rubrics of the Holy Mass, the asparagus rite, the rite of sprinkling, happens at the principal Mass on Sunday. But it also serves a beautiful reminder, especially now in the absence of holy water, it also is a beautiful reminder of our baptismal dignity. That's what holy water does. It reminds us of our baptismal dignity that allows us to enter into the mysteries of the God that are at work at Holy Mass. Once the sprinkling rite has finished, he makes the sign of the cross and begins the prayers at the foot of the altar. Of course, the beauty of the sign of the cross, it's described, especially in the patristics, as the essential prayer of the church. If indeed the holy sacrifice of the Mass contains everything that we need to know, the one gesture that one needs to know would be the sign of the cross. The language itself reflects this theological reality of what we believe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We mark ourselves, we sign ourselves with the sign of the Blessed Trinity. But even the language itself 
it should be in the name of the Father and of the Son. Uh, 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 rather, uh, it should, in the translation, in the vernacular sometimes, they don't always agree with each other, meaning there's a singularity, but also dealing with a plurality. Father, Son, and Spirit, as opposed to the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit. No, in the name, one name, three persons, one God. Even in the act of signing, the language itself reflects theologically what it is that we believe about the Blessed Trinity. So again, even if you didn't know what was going on, if you didn't know any theology whatsoever, the sign of, cross, the sign of, the sign of the cross is enough theology to teach you about the Blessed Trinity. The prayers at the foot of the altar begins with, In Ibel al Atari Day, I go up unto the altar of God, unto God who giveth joy to my youth. I go up to the altar of God. It is a beautiful series of prayers whereby the priest, assisted by the acolytes or the subdeacon and deacon, prepares himself to go to God's house. The priest, in doing this, he recalls in these prayers at the foot of the altar, he recalls first the sacrifice of God as he goes up to the altar of God. He recalls then his sinfulness and his need for forgiveness when he enters into the confidior. And then there is a final prayer he prays privately when he literally is ascending the stairs. There are two prayers that he prays, the alfer anobis, where he is recognizing the need for purity of heart. All of these prayers for the priest, and you say, well, what's, oh, that's great for the priest, what about us? But again, remember, he is in your stead. Yes, these things relate to him personally. He's asking them for him personally, but he's also asking them on your behalf as well. He is the one person who can be both himself and everybody at the same time. That's what he's ordained for, to be himself and to be all of you. So when he goes up to the altar of God and he expresses that need for uh, an understanding of the sacrifice, he's bringing you with him. When he understands in the confidior the need for uh, the recognition of his sinfulness, but also the recognition of God's forgiveness, and then that purity of heart. And so your missiles provide you a chance as those prayers are being prayed, not to follow along with him word for word, but to pray those prayers with him as he himself is praying them. All of these prayers beautifully emphasize the priest and to the faithful the sacredness of what it is that is being celebrated and that we truly are entering into something holy. All of this, of course, is directed to the altar, that place of sacrifice. The psalm, Eutychame, with Psalm 42, is this beautiful psalm that he also prays uh, as, uh, that's prayed by one who is afflicted one who, in a sense, stands far from the sanctuary but longs actually to go up it. So even at low mass, where the priest processes out, genuflects, goes up, puts the chalice down, he then comes back. So mass has not begun. And once it has begun, when the bell rings. But there is this preparation that's being given that you're allowed to enter into, that you're experiencing. It's pulling us all in. One of the things I love about it, it's, it's, it allows me time, in a sense, as a practical note, to get my act together, to get my mind together, to slow myself down, because I am entering into these holy realities. The public confession, the confidior, which is prayed by both the priest and then the server on behalf of the faithful, and then we, by tradition, do the second confidior or as well. 
dates back from the second century. There's evidence of this public confession of sins beginning in the second century. That's how old this stuff is. And not just because it's old is it good. I mean, old isn't always good, because if you're getting old, you know that isn't always easy. So I'm not saying that getting old is always good. But some of these old stuff is good, because it's stuff that isn't, it's been passed on, it's been built on. It survived the times and the turmoil and the tribulation of all the kingdoms. And think about all the things of the world that have changed since the second century, since 100 A.D. The whole of North Africa is totally different. The whole Middle East has been radically transformed. Europe didn't exist as we understand it now. And the known world was not known. And yet we're still praying prayers and uttering things that have come from that time that have survived. The Confidior in its current form has its origins in the early 7th century. Prayed silently, and then eventually by the 8th century, prayed out loud, and then from the 12th century, prayed out loud in its actual current form. So it went through a couple of iterations. It at one time was much longer than it actually is. And again, the purpose of this is to ask God's assistance to allow the Lord to teach us humility. The priest, what's the posture for the confidior? I'm bowing down. I'm not even looking up. And at this point, I'm instructed that I am not allowed to yet look up. I'm not allowed to even look at the cross. It's like the publican who stands in church and, and, lay, and, and puts his head low and says, you know, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. He was not proud to look up, to peer upon God. The church says for the priest, especially at this public confession, at the confidior, and all these, again, are part of the prayers at the foot of the altar in preparation, you bow down. You're not ready yet. The priest confesses first, but then the people, in the person of the acolyte, but then in the dialogue mass, which is a relatively new reality, about 70, 80 years old, in the dialogue mass, is allowed to, the faithful are allowed to join in as well and make their confession of faith. There then is present in the blessing that concludes the confidior, the indulgentium absolutionum et remissionum, there is the sacramental whereby venial sins are actually forgiven. God forgives you. God has actually forgiven you your venial sins. Confession, by definition, is for the remission of mortal sins committed after the sacrament of baptism. Yes, it can be, yes, venial sins can be and should be confessed in confession, but the church teaches there are other venues for the remission of venial sins, and the blessing that is given at the end of the confidior is one of those. Finally, the priest then approaches the altar. There are two final prayers that he prays as he approaches the altar. And I'm going to read them to you right now. The first is the Alpha Arnobis, which reads in translation, Take away from us our iniquities, we beseech thee, O Lord, that with pure minds we may worthily enter into the Holy of Holies through Christ our Lord. Amen. And then the Oramos Te Domine. We beseech thee, O Lord, by the merits of thy saints. And here the priest is instructed to reverence the altar of the saints, which by tradition would have been in the altar, in the altar stone itself, whose relics are here, 
and of all the saints, that thou would vosafe to forgive me all of my sins. Purity of heart and mind to enter into the Holy of Holies, asking the saints to intercede for the forgiveness of our sins as we go up into the altar of God. Okay. Hmm. So as you can imagine, we're not going to get through everything because I always bite off more than I can chew. Let me make a few more comments because I want to leave some time for questions and answers. So then he arrives at the altar and he... So structurally what has happened? The prayers at the foot of the altar have actually happened here at the foot of the altar. There are three steps by tradition. This moving up, this triune reality that's reinforced physically in the life of the church. As he has prayed those prayers, that second prayer, the Oramos de Domine, he has reverenced the altar. Then he makes his way to the epistle side. So, you know, we don't really say left or right, because it gets confusing. Because if I'm talking to you about left or right, and I'm facing this, what are you talking about? So you either say the epistle side, which is always this side, or the gospel side, which is always this side. Or you can say the Joseph side, because Joseph is over there. Or you can say the Mary side. That way, if we're talking, what side are you talking about? The Mary side. Okay, now I know which side you're talking about. Because if I say to you, if we're going to pray the divine office, for example, I'm going to say, I'm splitting you on the main now. Right side over here, left side over here. Well, wait a minute. Right side's over here for me. You get what I'm talking about. Okay, so he's at the epistle side. He comes, he's going, there he's going to do the introit. So what has happened? At this point, the things that have happened at Mass, with few exceptions, again, knowing that High Mass is our normative example, these would be parts of the Mass that are invariable, meaning they're not changing from Sunday to Sunday. The first thing that's going to be particular, so if you're in your Missal, for example, where have you been in your Missal at this point? You have been at the ordinary of the Mass. That's where you are in your Missal. All those things that help you from the beginning, from the sign of the cross to the prayers at the foot of the altar, which you can follow along. Um, that then, then you get to the introit. This is where you're now going to get to a prayer not the prayer, that's not the right, the introit, the entrance antiphon that expresses the theme of the reality of what's actually happening at Holy Mass. And it could be said at this point, this is the beginning of Holy Mass proper because it is at the introit that the priest makes the sign of the cross. He makes it at the foot of the altar, but he also makes the sign of the cross when he does the introit as well. This is a variable part or a changing part of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And the introit reflects the character of the Mass being celebrated, meaning if it's in one of the privileged seasons, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Septuagesima, uh, Easter, Pentecost, it's going to reflect that, or if it's a saint's day or a particular saint or a particular votive Mass, it's going to reflect that. There are four parts to the, intro to the introit. There is the antiphon itself, The antiphon is followed by the first verse of the psalm that is part of the introit, so what they call the core of the introit, which is the first verse of the psalm. The third part is the Gloria Patri. And then part four is the repetition of the antiphon. So the antiphon, the core, which is the first verse of the psalm, the conclusion with the Gloria Patri, and then the repetition of the antiphon itself. Initially, the entire psalm was said. 
but obviously that could be lengthy, and over time it was truncated to simply that verse. And part of the history of the introit, and again the length of the psalm before it was truncated, was it was also connected to the procession itself, which would have made the introit even longer. The use of the introit dates from the 5th century. Let me get to the Kyrie and the Gloria, and then that will actually be a good place for us to pause as we move into the Mass of the Catechumen, or the Mass of the Faithful next week. The priest then leaves the epistle and makes his way to the center and begins the Kyrie. This too, at one point, was initially part of a procession between the stational churches. Now, what does that mean? There are seven primary churches in Rome. If you've ever been, how many people have been to Rome? Oh, that's a good number, good. Every Catholic should go to Rome. If every Muslim has to go to Mecca, every Catholic should go to Rome. Peter and Paul are there. Of course, our Lord is there, but our Lord is here too. But you can meet Peter and Paul, and Philip Neri, and Agatha, and Agnes. Uh, and we talk about the saints because they're alive. So we don't talk about, I'm going to their grave. I'm going to encounter Philip Neri. I'm going to go have a conversation with Andrew. So I have a, a friend over there now studying, and I said, go talk to Philip Neri for me and intercede for my priesthood to the, the great apostle to Rome in the 16th century. So in Rome are the seven primary churches, and there would be processions between them, oftentimes led by the deacon. Now, I'm, I don't want to get too far into the history of this because there's a reason for that, and again, we can come back and describe this in more detail. But the Kyrie would have actually have been kind of a call and response. There would have been invocations that the deacon was praying, and the response of the faithful who were walking in procession would have been Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison. Um, it was a response to the invocations that were being made by the deacon in the procession between the stational churches. It receives its ninefold structure by the 7th century. And one of the things you have to remember is if we can say with some definitiveness that things were in place by a certain century, that means that probably two centuries preceding, they were already on the scene. It isn't as if somehow it appears in the 7th century. What this means is by the 7th century, we have evidence of it being written down somewhere. So it was being passed on, which means there was already something happening before that. This is why Justin Martyr, for example, who gives us in the 2nd century, the beginning of the middle of the uh, 100s, he gives us the structure of the Mass. He describes what's going on. Well, this, is, this lets us know that what Justin Martyr is writing is something that was part of the tradition of the church already. He didn't make this up. He's writing down what has already received. There is contained in them, in this ninefold invocation, the brevity and intensity that is uh, particular to the Roman liturgy. Uh, and it's a beautiful interchange when you get going. I like it at low mass when it gets almost gets it almost gets fast in a way. You're competing with the server to see who could actually say it faster. You're not rushing through it because you kind of just get a rhythm going. Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison. And all I have to remember is I got to begin it and end it. Whatever happens in the middle doesn't matter because a couple of times I've gotten lost and I've messed up the server, or he's messed me up, doesn't matter. As long as I end and begin, then we're okay. Now, I don't want to say that because I don't want to um, be dismissive of the rules, but there's a beauty there. Again, in its brevity, but also then in its intensity. 
And in this invocation, it allows us to do two things. It allows us to give homage to God, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, and then to petition the salvation that God brings to us through this mercy that we're asking him to bestow upon us. There also is, in the allegorical developments which happened in the early to middle ages, the middle, middle ages, there's a lot of allegorical comparisons of various aspects of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. That the ninefold invocation of the Kyrie reflects the nine choirs of angels, and in so doing beautifully interweaves the earthly liturgy with this heavenly hymn of praise. That's some good stuff, folks. And you can't make this up. That's the beauty of it. These aren't my words. These aren't my insights. These are things that have been passed down to me that I'm passing down to you. You could have found them, so all I did was make your life a little bit easier. There's nothing secret or hidden. It's all there. You just got to go hunt for it. Well, I did the hunting for you, and that's my job. I'm happy to do that. One final thought, and then we'll have just a few minutes for questions. I know we're getting close. We'll have a few minutes. Is then the Gloria. Initially, the Gloria was only sung on Christmas because of, obviously, its connection to what the angels say when they uh, encounter the shepherds. And then it developed to being chanted or recited at Masses where the bishop would celebrate. By the 11th century, we know that the Gloria is required on all feast days. And it beautifully parallels that Trinitarian supplication that's present in the Kyrie as well. Glory to God in the highest. It speaks about giving glory to God, about the mystery of the Son by the work of the Spirit. It is yet another hymn of praise of the Trinity, which again, oftentimes the West is accused, the West meaning the Western church, the Roman church, is accused of not having the same facility with the blessed Trinity in the way that the East does, because the East didn't do theology in the way we did in such a systematic fashion. A lot of theology for the Eastern church actually happens through the liturgy itself, um, they do truly understand the liturgy as kind of a locus theologicus, a, a, a place to encounter theology. But as we've already articulated, there is in what we say and what we do in our prayers this articulation of dogma. And so here we have this, uh, again, this great hymn of Trinitarian praise before we then move to the collect itself. Let's pause right there. It seems to be a good place to stop. And with the few moments we have left, see if there are any questions or comments. Yes? Why is the Kyrie in Greek is the question that was asked. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a level because you know what? I, Stan, you know the answer to that question? Uh, I'm, I'm making reference to one of my mentors who's sitting here. It's actually kind of, um, he wouldn't want me to say this, but it's a little bit intimidating giving this talk with him actually sitting here. Because um, he knows infinitely much more than I do. I would, I would offer, I would offer by, by virtue of tradition, that's how it made its way into the liturgy itself, but I'm going to get you a better answer than that. I'm going to write that question down. Or Stan's going to give me a better answer than that. Between the two of us, we'll have a better answer for you next week. Please, Lauren. Who writes those prayers? So that's an interesting question. 
So there is in the early life of the church, this would be in maybe the first hundred years or so, there was a latitude given to the priest to offer, to, in a sense to, uh, I, I don't want to say make up because it sounds as if he's kind of just, you know, on the field playing up his own game, but that's what he was allowed to do. But it very clearly, so, and again, I, want to be, I, want to, I don't want to get too far deep into this because this is another conversation, but you know that when the, when the church, there, I don't know, where do I want to start with this? Because initially, the church celebrated, if you will, the sacrifice of the Mass in its meal motif, along actually with a meal. So there would be, they were together in the first, certainly before the expulsion from the temple, which happens under the, the, with the Joanine communities, so somewhere between 80 or 90 AD is when the Joanine communities kicked out of the temples. The Christians are finally expelled from the temple, all right? And there is still developing this because we are, we, I mean, we're Judeo-Christians. We, our origins are what we got from our Lord himself who gives definitive meaning to the Passover and all of these events. So there was a freedom given to the priest to pray these prayers. But then there also almost immediately happens, and again, immediacy is, is, is a, a stretch in a sense because obviously there was no internet or anything of that nature, where they said, wait a minute, we have to make sure that the content of these prayers is theologically sound. And so what begins to happen is through oral tradition, prayers become static and formed. And by and large, they would have been coming from the bishop himself. Because we're used, again, to a church with a proliferation of priests celebrating Mass in all these places. That would not have been common. Yes, there were priests and deacons, but the bishop exercised more of a visible liturgical function in the early life of the church. And then as time progresses more and more, and by getting meaning probably the first um, what, the, 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 the Veronese sacramentary, they want to trace it back to 6th, 5th, 6th centuries. We're talking the 400s. We have evidence of books being written down. Now again, is it the missal that we use at Mass today? No. It would be fragments of various things that would have been written down. Because again, some of this was being done by oral tradition. Some of it was in different books. Some of it was attached to various uh, responsibilities. So those all things that belong to the bishop, those things that belong to the deacon. So, it doesn't completely answer your question, but it does give us the insight that initially there was a latitude given, then it was followed almost immediately by a need to codify this so that theologically the prayers were accurate, and then in, over time, over the course of maybe 400 years or so, maybe 500, they begin to be put down and become more and more static as time goes on. That's a good question. And that's a whole other topic. I love the conversation about the different sacramentaries that have been found. Um, anyway, so that's what I tell you. I got like five talks in my head right now we can do. Any other questions or thoughts? Yes, please, ma'am, in the back. How do you know what the scola is singing? Is the question. The scola is... so. At the 11.30 Mass, for those of you who don't come to, or how many have actually seen, either come regularly or have seen solemn, or have seen high Mass? Anybody, let me put it this way, anybody not ever seen sung Mass or high Mass? Okay. Just, Kip, you never, really? Oh, that's interesting. We're going to have a conversation about that. Um, I'm going to break you of that eventually. Okay, so most of you, all right, so, so, when, so, when, the, so when we arrive, after the, after the asperges, so after the priest has arrived, he's done the sprinkling, he takes off his 
Um, what am I, why am I blanking? Thank you, Father. He takes off the cope. Oh, my goodness gracious. Don't get old. It is not for sissies. It's terrible. Um, and he puts on the chasuble. He comes back here, and he begins the prayers at the foot of the altar. What the choir or the scola is singing is the introit, which is the prayer that he will be praying over here, which is why oftentimes one of two things will happen, depending on how long the introit actually is. Sometimes I kind of rush to see if I can get there before they do, meaning, because what do I have to do? I have to, I have to do the prayers at the foot of the altar. I have to come up. I have to incense. Then I've got to go get to the altar, go do the introit. What have they done? Well, I've been doing all of that. They have chanted the introit, then they have chanted the Kyrie. So oftentimes they will have gotten that before I will have actually gotten to the Kyrie. I still recite the Kyrie. Now, again, some people will say, and this is one of the critiques of the Reformers, why the necessity of the redundancies? For a whole host of reasons, which we'll get into later on. That may be kind of a concluding comment. Um, but there is, on a personal level, a beauty to that dynamic that the, the scola has led, has in a sense offered the introit. They have already given you, if you will, that, that foretaste of what this liturgy is about. They've already given you the Kyrie, because then what will happen is, once I finish, I'm going to come and I'm going to intone the Gloria. And at that point, we're going to be simpatico, meaning we're going to be pretty much on the same page. Meaning, for example, the next thing they're going to chant is after I have chanted the epistle, which we didn't get to, which we will when we get to the instructions, they're going to chant the gradual and the alleluia while I recite it. That's when I'm going to go sit down. I'm, I'm jumping ahead, and this will make sense next week when I go through that. So the practical is, how do you know where they are? As soon as they start singing at Mass, on chanting on Mass on Sunday, they're at the introit. That's where you start. And if you want to follow along with them, that's, that's, that's where you would follow in your ordinary. So even if you're not with me, when is the next time you could catch up with me? You'll know where I am. When I finally come back here, I'll say, Dominus Vaviscum, Ecum Spiritutuo, Oremus. I'm going to go back for the collect. And that's how you, in a sense, you'll know where we are at that point. Does that make sense? So I know a lot of this can be confusing, but once you begin to see how it all beautifully fits together, it actually isn't that confusing. You know more of what's going on when you're actually allowed to kind of articulate what's trying to happening and transpiring. We are out of time, so I don't want to keep you longer, and I know it's raining, so I want everyone to have a chance to make their way home. Um, okay, so it's good to see everyone here. Next week will be our conclusion. We're gonna, it's going to have to conclude because we're out of time next week, so I will do my best to stay even more on task. Please invite others. Uh, there really isn't a necessity any longer for you to RSVP. We're counting on, we make copies anywhere between 150 or more, so we should, pretty, should be pretty good in that regard, okay? If you would please rise. Dominus Vobiscum. Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis Patris, et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, descendat super vos et maniat semper. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks, everyone. Have a safe evening. Be careful going home.